Greetings, beloved, and happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. Uh, I hope that you and your families are blessed during the time of this Holy Week. Welcome to another edition of Modern Day Truth Ministries. This is Jordan Thompson. Uh, The last message uh, was part of a two-part series. That was part one. This is part two, where we looked at Jesus cry a victory. And today I want to take a little bit different approach with my message than I initially had planned. I will say more often than not, God does this to me. I had it all planned out, what I wanted to say and what I wanted to talk to you all about today. And I believed that I was finished and ready to go, but I found myself at midnight completely starting over with what I wanted to talk about today. And the approach of today's message will be drastically different than I normally uh, tend to approach things. You see, today I'm going to approach this message and it is tailored towards the doubter, the unbeliever, and the person that is on the fence. I think oftentimes as believers, we become so comfortable preaching sermons that we tend to appreciate, and in our evangelistic efforts, we forget to tailor things sometimes to the unreached. So today I want to talk about the case of the resurrection. Those of you who know me know that once upon a time I had a strong desire to be an attorney. To articulate and argue a point that can paint a picture to a jury and help them draw a reasonable conclusion. Well, today, my friends, all of you out there in the listening universe who may come across this message, consider yourselves the jury. The case that you'll be hearing today is the case of the resurrection. This is one of the most hotly debated topics in human history. How can we have faith? in a living religion, if the Savior is dead. Every person in history has crossed over the threshold from life to death. However, there is only one who has crossed over from life to death, but yet was able to rise again in victory. Today, this message will explore what I like to call the three V's. Typically, in a criminal proceeding, It is the prosecution's job to present means, motive, and opportunity. Today, I want to address the three V's. Those are validity, the value, and the victory found in the resurrection. What makes Jesus the most unique figure in history What places him in a class all by himself is his conquering of death and the grave. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be stillborn, a once-living religion which is now dead upon arrival. The resurrection is what makes Jesus Christ of Nazareth so unique. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, I would like you to look at verse 3. This is Acts, the first chapter, verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many, infallible proof being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
According to Acts chapter 1, Jesus didn't just rise and disappear into the sunrise. The Bible says that Jesus rose, presented himself to be seen after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Infallible meaning unwavering proofs. He was seen by the disciples for 40 days, speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. As when arguing a case in court, you cannot offer speculation. In Acts chapter 1, it says that there are many convincing proofs. Today, being led by the Spirit, I will seek to take you down a path that shows not only the spiritual feasibility, but the intellectual feasibility of the resurrection. Many detractors and doubters present their argument based on the intellectual belief. As, as to how this could not be true. And today, I will challenge their intellectual belief with the intellectual proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can stand up against anything that has existed and passed down through written record. If you have a reason to believe in Abraham Lincoln, a George Washington, a Harriet Tubman, a Frederick Douglass, or a Franklin Delano Roosevelt, if you have any reason to believe in any historical event, it is because of the documentation of said event or individual. There is no one alive today who has seen Lincoln or Washington who saw the War of Independence or the War of 1812. We treat these things as true because of the reliability of the written historical record. To the intellectual who argues there is no historical record to support this belief, I would retort we have a written account called the Bible. I apply the same principle or criteria of authenticity to the Bible. And when one does this, there's one thing that comes up. Certain pieces of data, which I think only make sense in light of the hypothesis that I have presented, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did happen. God raised Jesus from the dead. If we believe the authenticity of written historical events, why cannot that same belief be applied in the case of Jesus' resurrection. You see, Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion is multiply attested in seven independent documents. Four of those sources are secular. Three of them are from the New Testament. The secular sources include Josephus, Tacticus, Merabar Serapion, and Lucian of Samsada. The New Testament sources are the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John, in addition to Paul's writings, the letters of Paul, known as the Epistles to the Churches. This makes it overwhelmingly more possible that Jesus' crucifixion is indeed an event in history. 
It is statistically impossible for seven independent sources to make up the same story. Denial of the crucifixion's history entails that the seven sources fabricated the same lie independent of each other. Many times, the belief used to try and discount Christianity and its teachings is one based on logic. Well, in this case, logic says that since those seven independent sources could not have come up with the identical same story at various points in time, and it be a lie. So first, we have established that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ can indeed be viewed and should be viewed as a historical event. Jesus' crucifixion is attested by sources hostile to Christianity, Tactitus and Lucian being chief among them. These sources would have nothing to gain by saying Jesus' crucifixion really happened if it didn't. In fact, these writers ridicule Christianity in the very same context of their passages referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. So we not only have the accounts of the Bible, those who are in favor of Christianity, but even those hostile to its teachings acknowledge the validity of Jesus' crucifixion and ultimate death. Historical fit makes it plausible that Jesus died by crucifixion if we are to ascertain what we have deduced from the evidence presented. Secular history attests to the fact that Romans crucified people in the first century. That Jesus was crucified fits well with what we know of first century crucifixions. Now, my friends, we come to the empty tomb. This is a real problem for detractors and doubters because the intellectual argument they use for the case against Christ comes back to bite them in the proverbial rear end. The first theory that many detractors offer is called the spoon theory, which states that Jesus did not actually die up on the cross. He essentially swooned on the cross. He simply lost consciousness without dying. And when placed in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him. He came back to life to his natural senses and simply walked out of the tomb. The problem with this is how does one go from unconscious to conscious, get up and move a stone that took multiple men to place in front of the tomb in the first place, then pass a swarm of Roman soldiers, the best military force at the time, and walk a number of miles to meet the disciples? This swoon's theory just does not sit right, as it is so far out there, it is not reasonable, or even as reasonable, as Christ simply rising from the dead. This also pokes holes in the logic argument that Christ did not rise from the grave. There is also a more common theory known as the theft theory. Detractors argue that Jesus could not have risen from the dead could not have risen from the dead. They argue that the disciples or anyone could have moved the body. So the question I often ask is, where is it? 
Why has it never been found after 2,000 years? Someone, somewhere, at some point, would have found Jesus' body if it indeed were moved and hidden. If Jesus is dead and stayed dead, why is the tomb empty? I want to look at the precautions that Pilate took to ensure that this would be an impossibility. Matthew, the 27th chapter, if you would like to follow along, it is Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 62 through 68, addresses these precautions. And verse 62 reads, And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, but how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way and make secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So to accomplish what they theorized, to make this theory, you'd have to overcome a Roman guard. And a Roman guard at that time was anywhere from four to 16 soldiers, the most armed, best trained soldiers in the world at that time. And in addition to that, you would then have to have removed the stone, ignored the seal. And the seal was a seal of security. It was under Roman protection and rule, a death penalty offense to remove. More importantly, the Jewish authority wouldn't have stolen Jesus' body because they were the ones that requested that Pilate secure the tomb in the first place. In short, my friends, the theft theory has no logic or validity to it. The next theory presented is the ghost theory. And I would like to use Luke chapter 24 to address this theory. This theory argues that people really didn't see Jesus. They saw a ghost that they thought was Jesus. The Gospel of Luke addresses this in chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. This is Luke, the 24th chapter, verses 36 through 43. Verse 36 reads, Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood up in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. Verse 38 reads, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that is, I myself Handle me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marvel, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. I have never met a ghost, but I can sincerely doubt Casper would tell any one of us to touch him if he really existed. Moreover, we're not just talking one or two people here as having seen Jesus. 
According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus revealed himself risen to over 500 people outside of just the disciples. So for this theory to be correct, you mean to tell me that 500 people saw the same ghost, yet he had the scars and the marks of Jesus consistent with his death and had flesh and bone as they did. You see, my friends, the empty tomb, the first argument, argues for the second argument, which is the transformation of the disciples. We all know Peter. Peter, the great disciple, Peter, the apostle, the Pentecost preacher. He is also the same Peter who denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times just before the rooster crowed as Christ prophesied. The same Peter who said, I do not know this man, is also the same Peter we find later in Acts chapter 2. We find in Acts chapter 2 a much different Peter than the one who denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. And if you look at Acts the second chapter, we're going to look at verses 22 through 24. That is Acts, the second chapter, verses 22 through verse 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in the midst as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, having crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. A simple question must be asked here. What changed Peter from the man who said, I do not know him, not once, not twice, but three times, to the man preaching in the center of Jerusalem on Pentecost, being accused of being in a drunken stupor? You think the same Peter who ran scared and afraid and denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times is going to revert course oh so publicly for for something that is a lie or a pipe dream? Even to the staunchest intellectual who denies the rise of Jesus Christ from the grave, even they cannot make that logic make sense. The exhibit two that I would like to present in this argument is, does anyone remember a guy by the name of Paul? Paul, formerly Saul, was the foremost persecutor of the early church. He killed Christians for fun. When Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, the Bible says Saul of Tarsus was there authorizing the execution of this foreign religion that he saw as against the religion of the fathers, which was Judaism. Paul says in Philippians, the third chapter, when it came to persecuting of the church, he essentially was the kingpin of such things when he was Saul. I ask you, believers and non-believers alike, what happened to cause transformation in this man? How does he go from the persecutor of the church to the predominant author 
and one of the foremost apostles of the New Testament. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we get an answer to this question. And we'll look at verse 14 to begin with. That is 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, and we're going to look at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And if we hop down then to verse 17, it reads, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. What changed Saul to Paul? It was the resurrection. It was that in-person encounter with the risen Lord on that road to Damascus. It was the resurrection that changed Paul's course forever. You don't go from killing Christians in the thousands to a complete 180 or 360, whatever you want to call it, to being arguably the greatest apostle of all time and the majority writer of the New Testament unless you've seen something, unless you have experienced something that is truly transformational. Paul saw with his very own two eyes a living, breathing Jesus Christ, and he was never the same again. There is no other way to explain the transformation of these two pillars of Christianity other than the resurrection did indeed happen. If you ask any lawyer whether you're arguing innocence or guilt, what is the best way to make a case to a jury? And I think 10 out of 10 lawyers would agree, eyewitness testimony. If we stay in 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verse 4, Paul addresses this as well. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. This is 1 Corinthians 15, which we are already in. But we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. And verse 4 reads, And he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Verse 8, the last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." Paul says here, not only was he seen by Cephas and of the twelve, but he was seen by over 500 other people at once, of whom the greater part remain, meaning that at the time Paul is writing this letter, many of the 500 who saw Jesus were still living, even though some had gone to sleep, meaning had, had met death. A great number of people at the time that Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 had seen a risen Jesus. He concludes it with, not only did all these other people see him, I'm not just giving you what we would call hearsay, but I myself have seen him, the least of these. For I'm not worthy to call myself an apostle because I doubted in the beginning until I met him on that Damascus road. 
So then the question that many detractors and unbelievers then would ask if this was a case being heard in the court of law would be, can we trust the account of the eyewitnesses? Because we not only see that the 12 saw Jesus, but Cephas, but also 500 plus more people, in addition to his brother James, who if we understand the biblical account, doubted Jesus at one point in his life. But we also see that the author of 1 Corinthians, Paul himself, has seen the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Then a detractor at this point would then ask, are they reliable? And to that I retort, do we question anything we are taught in American history or world history? We accept it as gospel then why not base up the documentation written in great detail, the eyewitnesses' account of not just Paul, but the apostles? Do we not apply the same standard to the story of Christ's resurrection? Now I would like to explore the second V. We've explored the validity of the resurrection, I want to talk about the value of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave, so what? This is a question that I've been asked by atheists and agnostics alike. If I believe, if I take your belief then that Jesus rose from the grave, what does it mean? And to this I answer, it means simply that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus Christ prophesied the resurrection in Matthew Chapter 16, verse 21, from the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, if we look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, this is Matthew, the 20th chapter, verse 19, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus says this once again about himself, that he will rise after three days. Lastly, we find Matthew 28, 6. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. At this point, Mary has gone to the tomb on that early Sunday morning, and the tomb is empty. The angel tells her Jesus has risen from the grave. He is not here. The implication is simple. Jesus said, I will be put to death and I will rise again. By proving the resurrection to be correct is to prove Jesus' words true. And if we pr prove Jesus' words to be true, we can ascertain that everything else is indeed correct. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. We cannot believe in heaven without the resurrection. Heaven exists not because you or I have been there, but I know who said it exists. His word has yet to be proven untrue or unreliable. It is the words of he who rose from death and who conquered death, hell, and the grave. It has been verified that Jesus can be believed. His word has never returned as void or untrue. The resurrection, more importantly, confirms the salvation of all 
believer. Paul says in Romans 4, verses 24 and 25, But for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from death. Verse 25, who was delivered upon because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Brothers and sisters, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are trusting in him alone for the forgiveness and remissions of sin, if you are trusting in the fact that his finished work on the cross has sufficiently satisfied the debt owed to God by sin, then the resurrection is your guarantee that your salvation is secure. The resurrection is our receipt that the debt has been paid in full and it is signed, sealed, and delivered. The enemy no longer has a claim on any one of us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our receipt. It is God showing payment was received and payment was accepted. There is nothing else to be done. The finished work of Jesus Christ brings fullness and completeness to the plan of salvation. Our salvation was secured. The receipt we hold is the truthfulness of the resurrection. Friends, we've talked about the validity of the resurrection. We have talked about the value of the resurrection. And now I want to look at the victory of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is an eternal victory over sin. Paul says essentially in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sin. And oh man, would humanity ever be in trouble. This is a two-part victory. The resurrection brings us victory over the reality of sin, but it also brings us victory over the power of sin. I have said this many times, and I will say it again. Grace is not the license to sin, but it is the freedom from the bondage and from the chains of sin. Because of the resurrection, we are able to live a life where sin no longer has ownership over us. We are freed from that yoke. That yoke has been broken by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was good then, it is good now, and it is good in the future. It is one thing for us to sin, but it is another thing in and of itself to be owned by sin. Nobody is perfect. In the words of Paul, none are perfect, not a single one. And that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that we are no longer dominated or bound to sin because of our sinful nature, because we have the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus, and because we have victory in him through the resurrection. You see, my friends, the power of the resurrection allows us to identify in a new life linked with Christ. Paul explains this in Romans 6. In short, we can say, I am not who I used to be, and I do not act as I used to act because I am no longer owned by sin. Brothers and sisters, in a trial, a jury often hears before deliberation a closing argument. Friends, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, before you deliberate, let me give you a closing argument. 
Because as you deliberate on the case of the resurrection, this is a deliberation that has an eternal impact on your life. Whether you accept that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the grave and conquer death and hell and sin in one single swoop, or whether you reject the idea altogether, no matter the choice you make, there is an internal implication that awaits at the other side. There's a couple simple truths I would like you to remember. Number one, the tomb in which Jesus was buried in was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday following the crucifixion. Jesus' disciples had real experiences with whom they not only believed was the risen Christ, but who indeed proved beyond a shadow of a doubt he was the risen Christ. And number three, as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which has the resurrection as its center and the core of its belief, the Christian church was established and has continued to grow. You see, friends, we believe what is written in history books because it meets the six standards necessary for historical theory. It is on this day that I ask you to understand that if these things are true, we must also accept the truth of the gospel, Christ's birth, death, and ultimately his resurrection, because they also meet the six standard criteria for confirming historical theory. The first being it has great explanatory power. Number two, it has great explanatory scope. Number three, the resurrection of Christ is plausible. Number four, it is not ad hoc. Number five, it is in accord with accepted beliefs. And lastly, number six, it outstrips rival theories in criteria number one through five. None of the naturalistic theories raised over the last 2,000 years used to try and explain these facts are tenable. They all fail in comparison to the evidence that has mounted that Christ was indeed born, did indeed live, did indeed go to the cross, give his life for mankind, and he did rise from the grave. Brothers and sisters, the cost is too great. The risk is too high. There is much to lose. Your soul is at stake. Your life is at stake. The question is, how much more evidence will it take for us to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust that he is who he said he was, that we are saved in Christ alone? There is much more evidence for the truth of Christ's message than I've presented here today. This is only a brief sketch of some of the historical evidence. There is also evidence of fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, over 300 fulfilled prophecies from Genesis to Malachi. The point is that the evidence exists. If the evidence is weak and unconvincing, then we can throw Christianity out and look elsewhere. But if it's true, the meaning of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, applies to each and every one of us. And we must be willing to submit regardless of what it says about us. Christ demands humility from us. 
You see, God demands humility from us. If he is indeed our maker, we cannot approach him with an attitude that is arrogant and demanding. We must approach him on his terms. Christ spelled out those terms. Mankind is in rebellion towards God and in need of forgiveness. This is exactly what Christ came to offer. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5, 24. And I also came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. If you have not accepted Christ into your heart, it is not too late. The promises of Jesus do not return as void or unfulfilled, my friends. I believe we are so close to a reunion with our Lord Jesus. Jesus' desire was that none should perish. Just like a jury has the ability to weigh the evidence, I implore you you today to weigh the evidence of Jesus Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. The implications are too great to ignore or to overlook any longer. To dispel this as fallacy or parable would be a grave mistake. For the wages of sin is death, but we are saved by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is both the Lion and the Lamb. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I implore you to believe with every part of your being in Jesus Christ, for there is no other name on heaven or on earth by which we might be saved. Don't wait another hour. Don't wait another minute or another second. Ask him into your heart and to be the Lord of your life, and you will never be the same. God bless you until we meet again.